Let us pray. Silence in us any voice but your own, gracious God, that we might hear your word powerfully and gracefully and hopefully. For Christ's sake, amen. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the 11th chapter of John's gospel, portions of the first 45 verses. Let us hear God's word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So the sister sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, rather it is for God's glory, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. She went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews were with her in the house, consoling her. They saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench, because he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. He 
cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My grandmother, my father's mother, Janet Isabel Tennant Wilkinson, died 40 years ago this past week. Though I had seen a dead body before, this was my first real experience with death. I was in the eighth grade. I remember it vividly, her illness, her failing body and deteriorating mind, my grandfather's tender care for her, our family's regular weekend visits to provide support. I remember calls between my dad and various doctors as they discussed care protocols long distance. I remember a call one night with the doctor, and my dad said, we don't want to do that. It was the right decision, but it was one that accelerated her decline. I remember when she was moved from their home to a care facility. She was there less than a week, and the call late at night informing my father that she had died. I remember the visitation at the funeral home when that practice was much more common. I remember the funeral. It was the first time I saw my dad cry. I remember the hymns. Of course I do, I'm a hymn weirdo, so I remember the hymns. Come Christians, join to sing. And guide me, O thou great Jehovah, Parenthetically, we will sing those hymns at my service, so if you are present, please sing exuberantly, because I won't be able to. <laughs> I remember the burial. Like many families, my parents had thought about all of this, but had not put much in place. They must have gotten a deal eight plots for the price of six or something like that at the Rose Hill Cemetery in Akron. So we did the math. There was space for my two grandparents and my two parents. But what to do with the other four? There were three siblings, so that left one unused. But, but we wondered, what if any of the kids were to be partnered? Who gets left out in this deal? And what if any of the partners, after careful consideration, really didn't want to be buried in Akron, Ohio? As fine of a municipality as it is. So years later, I finally broke it to my very frugal mother that the likelihood of Bonnie and me, or just me for that matter, being buried in Akron was slim. And I remember she understood or she kind of understood. I remember all of it, 
the experiences, the feelings, the grief, the relief, the gratitude, lots of laughter, lots and lots of tears. Why on earth do I tell you this? Well, certainly not for its uniqueness, but for its universality. Though we all have our particular stories of death, sudden or tragic, too soon, natural, unexpected, expected, that's the point. We all have stories of death. Faith certainly does not inoculate us from death, nor does it sanitize the experience. What faith does, I believe, and this is a crucial understanding of reconciliation, is allow us to face death, to journey with death in a different way, whether it's our own or those we love. Now, before the plagues of the last month of wind and snow put today's special choral music on hold, we had planned to connect the text of the Luke's Eterna, Eternal Life, of which you've just heard a beautiful section, with a discussion about death and reconciliation. It's still a conversation worth having, because the affirmation in the text we just heard resides at the core of what we believe. To deliver us, you became human. Having blunted the sting of death, you opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Come, Holy Spirit, and send forth from heaven the ray of thy light, thou best of consolers. Lamb of God, who takest away the sin of the world, grant them rest everlasting. May light eternal shine upon them, O Lord, in the company of thy saints forever and ever. For thou art merciful. Rest eternal grant to them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. That's what we believe, friends. That God will console those who grieve, all of us, and that God's perpetual light will shine on those who die. God's eternal rest will be theirs. That makes grief no less real, nor death any less present. But it places those experiences and that reality in the promise and vision of God's reconciling light. Now we will encounter the same passage this week and next from John's Gospel for very different reasons. Lazarus is ill, seemingly deathly so. Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are deeply concerned. It's a family scene that plays itself out time and time again, perhaps in your own life. So Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus asking him to come quickly, presumably to heal their brother. But they do not receive back the message they want to hear. Jesus dismisses the illness. 
and he stays where he is for another two days. Then he acts. He's on the move. He knows that Lazarus is dead, dead and buried. Many are consoling the sisters. But Martha blames Jesus. She declares that his tardiness allowed for the death to happen in the first place. She is unafraid to take Jesus on. Her sister Mary then repeats Martha's accusation. And rather than becoming defensive, Jesus is touched by the whole thing. He is moved. He is disturbed in spirit, we are told. Jesus instructs that the burial stone be rolled away, and though the crowd protests it, it is. Lazarus, come out, Jesus proclaims. And he does. Read the whole story again sometime soon. There is nuance and emotion from the sisters and from the crowd, from Jesus himself. And a quick summary, of course, will take us right to the conclusion, Jesus' miraculous works, and that indeed is very, very important. Scholars assert that this episode of Jesus' raising of Lazarus serves as a kind of preview for Easter morning, including the stone being rolled away. So let's not dismiss that. But what interests me at this moment is what we can learn about death and life and faith from this story for our own lives. When Jesus is not here with us in the flesh to revive our beloved dead, we certainly claim that faith about resurrection and eternal life, life beyond death in God's eternal presence. Yet, yet what about now? As we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, what about now? This week, a dear, beloved colleague of mine from Chicago died. And another valued colleague, just a couple years older than me, received a very tough cancer diagnosis. How do we face death? Navigate our own mortality and the mortality of those we love? What is reconciliation here? We will, of course, claim resurrection's promise in just a few weeks, but in the meantime, in the flesh and blood meantime, what do we do? Well, let's look at the story. What does it tell us? It tells us that we take grief seriously. Mary and Martha are heartbroken about their brother's decline and death, absolutely heartbroken. Their grief is real and palpable. Too often we are taught that faith should lead us to passive acceptance. But not here. This is real grief. This is real sadness. This is real anger even. And can't we envision the tears flowing, not flowing sweetly, but powerfully and passionately for a lost brother? Time was when we spoke of a grief process about stages of grief, a kind of emotional checklist we move through to lead us to some kind of conclusive moment. 
But I need to say, the more I'm around death, the more I think that's a fallacy. I think of death as a journey. Two steps forward, one step back, three steps sideways. And I'll speak with many of you who after a year or five years or ten years will hear your beloved one's voice, will shed a tear, will turn expecting to see them, will still feel that wave rushing over you. Grief is a journey. And faith does not dilute or erase or sanitize it. Grief is real, the story tells us. And so is compassion. It's quite extraordinary, is it not, how compassionate Jesus is. Though he stays away far too long for his friends' tastes, because they're waiting for a miracle, nonetheless, he is moved by it all. This is Jesus at his most human and compassionate and sympathetic. Jesus weeps. How extraordinary is that? Because even he knows the anticipated outcome of Lazarus' story, yet he weeps. He weeps with compassion for his friends and their grief. But note also this community surrounding the two sisters, caring for these two women, consoling, protecting, doing the equivalent of bringing a casserole or delivering a tray of brownies, offering prayers, seeing whatever can be done to ease the burden just a little bit. The community surrounded those who were grieving and worried never so much about what to say or what not to say, but they simply showed up. A ministry of presence, it's called. It's what we're called to practice as well to connect the very real grief with the very real consolation and compassion and care. Even when we can't sense God's rod and staff comforting us, we can certainly experience comfort from those around us. And we can certainly be emissaries of that comfort to all those who grieve. That'd be easy because of the stereotypes of faith that have formed so many of us, to head straight to Easter without Lent, straight to Easter without Good Friday. That is to say, it would be easy to accept platitudes like, it was God's will, or now she's in a better place. But life's not like that, nor is faith. We and those we love like Jesus, will walk the lonesome valley. We will. And resurrection will become, to be sure, we believe that, but, but resurrection does not sidestep the death that precedes it, nor gloss over it. Death will come. Death will come to those we love, death will come to us, and grief will be real. But the story teaches us that we can lean on a community of reconciliation who will support and console, led by the very human Jesus, walks in solidarity, and who even weeps for us. We say regularly that in life, 
and in death we belong to God. That's what reconciliation looks like, belonging to God in life and in death. Our confession of 1967 affirms that life in Christ is life eternal. The resurrection of Jesus is the sign that God will consummate the work of creation and reconciliation beyond death and bring to fulfillment the new life begun in Christ. What is reconciliation? It takes grief, it takes death itself, and reframes and redirects in the promise of eternal light and in the hope of eternal rest, new and eternal life that begins now and abides forever. Amen.